I'm Tom Parker, and welcome to the Next Five podcast, brought to you by the FT Partner Studio. In this series, we ask industry experts about how their worlds will change over the next five years and the impact it will have on our day to day. This week, we're focusing on ESG investing. I'll be speaking with Amanda Young, Global Head of Responsible Investment at Aberdeen, about where the sector has come in the last five years and what she expects to see in the next five. It's been five years since the Paris Climate Agreement inked into law the global goal to reach net zero by 2050. The ESG landscape has evolved rapidly since then, and ESG performance is now integral to attracting equity investors, debt finance, bank loans and M&A transactions. Here's Mark Carney, the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance, speaking in April this year, explaining why. What we have now in private finance is a focus on a clear goal, net zero, and finding the opportunities to advance that and to be rewarded by it. And also at the same time, not just for private finance to judge which companies are part of the solution, but what's exciting and interesting and challenging for the private financial sector is increasingly they too are being judged. Whether it's a bank or a pension fund or an asset manager, they're increasingly having to show where they are on the transition towards net zero. And then people are voting with their money. But despite its progress, ESG is still in a developmental stage, lacking established common terminology, universal reporting frameworks or standards. Someone who knows a fair bit about these issues is Amanda Young, Global Head of Responsible Investment at Aberdeen. One of the big challenges that we're facing at the moment is that many governments around the world are competing to be seen to be the greenest or, uh, you know, the most sustainable And what I worry about is that a range of regulation is just going to come up that's piecemeal, that everybody's trying to just outdo everybody else. And then we as asset managers and asset owners need to think about how we adopt that uh, regulation. So regulation only works if the aim is right, which I think in in, in this instance, all this regulation is aiming towards a more sustainable future for us all. But it has to be based on a set of principles that are easy to apply, but not vague. So I think the principles are not onerous, but the vagueness around the application still remains. I think this is where things like TCFD have been very successful, where um, carbon footprinting has been very successful because it is based on a common set of parameters and frameworks. So, you know, scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. And you're able to say, this is the carbon footprint of my portfolio. How you then take that in terms of reporting outcomes, which is ultimately where I think the industry will need to go to, that becomes more of a challenge. Before we go any further, for those who, like me, may be struggling to keep up with the complex evolving world of ESG frameworks and acronyms, here's a quick heads up on some of the big ones. The TCFD is the Task Force for Climate Finance Disclosures and was set up in December 2015 by the FSB, that's the Financial Stability Board, not the Russian Security Services, to better understand and price climate-related risks and opportunities. In November 2020, the UK committed itself to implementing mandatory TCFD-based disclosures across its whole economy by 2025. 
the EU recently updated its own NFRD, the Non-Financial Reporting Directive, to tackle climate reporting. Then there's the TNFD. That's like the TCFD, but looks at nature-related risks rather than climate ones. Next up is the IFRS, the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation, that since the G7 has been tasked with creating the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, before COP26 in November. For anyone interested, COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and it brings together countries that signed a UN treaty in 1994 to tackle climate change. And yes, you've guessed it, it's in its 26th year. And finally, there's the CPD, formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, an international not-for-profit organisation that since 2002 has helped states, regions, cities and companies measure and disclose their environmental impact. Currently, over 130 state and regional governments from 32 countries disclose through the CPD. That's over a fifth of the global economy. So there you have it. Now back to Amanda. This has been an industry that has had so many acronyms and so many different things springing up over the last decade. And I think it's going to continue because even if we think about third-party research providers, there's been a lot of consolidation over the last 10 years where smaller shops have set up to do very specific things and have been subsumed by a handful of now really big players. So I think the reason that we have task force repeating themselves on a different issue is the success of something like TCFD and the success of the fact that that has become a go-to standard. And carbon is a perfect example of where we have had some convergence. Regulation has been a lot more similar than some of the other ESG aspects that we look at. And scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, which was actually set up by the CDP, another acronym, which is, you know, again, it's been subsumed into something else. But that was set up and worked with the government to make it mandatory for companies in the UK to report against Scope 1, Scope 2, Scope 3, and eventually became a database for, you know, the largest number of companies in the world. And so that became a global standard. And that's kind of what we want to see. Nature-related disclosure is really important. We focused very heavily on climate change, but we actually have three key problems that I think we need to address as a world and we as investors need to be acutely aware of. The first is climate change, which is obviously a lot happening with COP and everything else. But let's park that for a side. The second is this unsustainable production and consumption, the fact that we consume, produce, consume, produce constantly. And there is something called World Overshoot Day which every year comes earlier. And World Overshoot Day is the day in the year that we as a world have used all the natural resources that we can naturally replenish. So sustainable natural resource use. It is now in late July. That means five months of the year we are using resources we can't replenish. That's not sustainable. It's quite shocking when you think of it that way. So this circular economy peace and this need to preserve natural capital is going to be, in my view, a very, very big focus. And it is tangentially linked to climate change because we need our forests to be carbon sinks, et cetera, et cetera. But actually deforestation, loss of biodiversity, all of these have long-term implications for lots of industries. Everything we have in our homes has either been mined, it's been drilled, or it's been chopped down, harvested. 
So if you think of that, if we keep consuming at the rate we're consuming, we don't have a world to, to keep living in. So that's a reason behind needing to work out what companies are doing to measure their natural capital use, to measure their natural reliance on natural capital. Because if we get to a point where natural capital becomes harder and harder to obtain, companies need to think about where they're going to get their raw materials from. I just want to look back at where we've been in the last five years because the Paris Climate Agreement was signed uh, in 2016. And where, where have we come since then? Well, I think you can genuinely say that ESG and climate change specifically has gone mainstream in the last five years. Five years ago, when the Paris Agreement was signed for investors, climate change was still an activity that was happening along the side as opposed to being a fundamental part of many investment managers' uh, portfolio analysis now. Um, and even in the last two years, what has been so extraordinary is the massive move to trying to think about where the investments we're making today will be in the future, so the next five years, next 10 years. And a lot of this is driven by um, COP coming up, which was obviously meant to happen last year, but because of COVID, it didn't. Um, and this push, particularly by the UK government, to um, galvanise appetite towards net zero. So net zero is the new big thing. What does net zero mean? So governments are talking about net zero, companies are talking about net zero, asset owners are talking about net zero, and asset managers are talking about net zero. And there are big commitments being made by asset owners to decarbonise their portfolios. And these big commitments are driving a huge amount of change in the industry. We've got COP26 coming up in November this year, and we've had the G7 already. What do you expect to see coming out of COP26 that hasn't been suggested already from, from the G7? Well, let's see if actually the things that have been suggested actually get signed up to. So that, that's a starting point. I remember the negotiations at Paris, the backwards and forwards and the backwards and forwards, and who was going to sign and who wasn't. I think that's the significant shift uh, in the last six years is that governments are far more vocal in committing to uh, reducing CO2, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, you can make the commitments, but then you need to see the action happening. So if it's a case of we need to protect our rainforest, then we need to see governments making sure that that happens. Uh, if it's a case of making sure that the commercial imperative to grow and pushing economies actually overrides the need to preserve natural capital and to protect the environment, let's see what happens. I think there'll be a lot of hot air. <laughs> I think governments will commit, but they will do so only if other governments can uh, do, because obviously they need a, a level playing field. But then the proof will be in the pudding. What is the action? I mean, if we look at the political landscape since Paris, you had the US sign up to Paris Agreement. You then had the US pull out of the Paris Agreement. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. And now you have the U.S. signing up the Paris Agreement again. I'll bring us back into the Paris Agreement. I'll put us back in the business of leading the world on climate change. I always said, actually, it doesn't really matter what governments do. It's the stakeholders within those countries that will drive the change. Because even though the U.S. pulled out, you still had individual states saying they were committed. You had agreements going backwards and forwards with China, which were reliant on certain carbon and climate change outcomes. This point about stakeholders is interesting. In other sectors, take energy for example, 
There is a collaboration between stakeholders, but very much a hierarchy of delivery to reach net zero. Firstly, governments set the frameworks for industry investment and public acceptance, and then providers create the technologies. Consumers come last in the process. They can't use hydrogen before it exists, for example. But we heard Mark Carney talking earlier about investors voting with their cash. So where do the responsibilities lie in the finance sector? The investment industry is very guilty of operating in isolation, i.e. don't worry your pretty little heads about it, we know what we're doing. And as long as we are doing what our institutional investment people want, then that's fine. We all need to take a step back and remember and recognise that we are there to manage money on behalf of the person on the street, not the big institutional investors, because they have their own stakeholders who they represent. And most of the money in the world is now invested for pensions and for savings and for the person on the street. So actually, the person on the street has a very, very strong voice. The challenge is they are very disconnected to actually what happens at the end of that food chain. But I think that the voices of people are being heard. And there are increasingly a larger number of younger people coming into financial services who just get this, who just want to do things because it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, they're entrepreneurial and they want to make money. So we, as asset managers, need to listen to our clients. Very often our clients are institutional investors, asset owners, you know, the, the pension funds of the world. But ultimately, they are representing the end investor, you and me and anyone who has a pension fund, anyone who has a saving. Uh, and anyone who's uh, investing directly into the markets themselves. And I think this is one of the reasons the regulation has come to force, is that they are seeing that there is this disconnect between the person on the street and their portfolios, and they're trying to somehow make asset managers much more accountable to the investors so they have a clear idea of where their money is being invested. What worries me slightly is that the regulation derails the activity So you become beholden to reporting and ticking a box and making sure that you're on the right side of the regulation rather than thinking very carefully and clearly about how you want to allocate your capital. So we need to be conscious that this does not derail the people who are making those investment decisions, who want to do so in a thoughtful, pragmatic way. But there are people who have been pushing the agenda for the right reasons. And again, it comes back to that point that I said at the beginning, Are we doing sustainability because it's the right thing to do and it will make you money? Or are we going, oh, sustainability is going to make us money, so we all need to jump on the bandwagon? There is a big chunk in the industry doing that at the moment. This needs to be done in a thoughtful, pragmatic manner that's actually going to shift capital rather than tick boxes and meet legislative requirements. Amazon, in May this year, issued a $1 billion green bond to invest in electric vehicles and clean transportation and warehousing, to help meet their goal of powering all of their operations with renewable energy by 2030 and have net zero emissions by 2040. That's a worthy cause and great target set by a big company. But Amazon holds nearly $85 billion in cash, a quarter of their assets, and have already invested in the projects they're asking more money for. Alongside other multi-billion dollar green bonds issued by Alphabet and Apple, both of which have even larger amounts of cash available, and could easily fund their own green revolution, this begs the question, are these bonds necessary? And is it detracting disposable capital away from companies that really need the cash to invest in their own climate ambitions? 
I think it's a very good question. It's a broader question, isn't it? You know, propping up big companies full stop, let alone if it's green or not green. I think the the big companies, whilst occasionally are often the pariahs in responsible investment industry, can also be the biggest movers of change because the small companies need to live up to their standards. So in some ways, the big companies need to step up and have a bigger sense of duty and demonstrate that responsibility. So I'm not anti-big companies issuing green bonds. If they can genuinely demonstrate and set some standards and be leaders about where that capital is being allocated. That said, we do need to uh, support innovation in the smaller in the smaller areas, and we have seen a rise in social impact investment houses that are doing just that. What we need to do is to see those pure impact players partnering with the big asset managers, where the big chunks of capital are, so that we can see scale in the social impact investment market. So we can see that going from niche to far more mainstream. And in doing that, we'll give better options for our end investors in terms of the sorts of things that they can invest in. Social impact investment market is thriving, but it is reliant on a few wealthy individuals who are high net worth individuals who can and have the luxury to invest in that type of activity. If you're a person on the street, you need to go through the big houses. You need to have the regulation that goes behind that. And so you actually need the big house to start developing the sorts of products that you would like to, say, put 5% of your pension fund into. I just want pure outcomes-driven impact investment, which might be all private, small social enterprises. Um, but that opportunity is not is not really being given to the individual. So there's a need to democratize investment and democratize the ability to access some of these uh, investment opportunities. I want to talk now about the next five years. What's the most exciting prospects and what do you expect to see happen? I think it's amazing that we've seen such a interest in sustainability. We now need to protect the values and the standards of that industry. So I think there'll be a big push towards demonstrating proper governance structures, proper regulation, properly well thought out mechanisms. And I would like to think that that can keep a pace of all the different things that investors are starting to look at. It's been a lot of people talking about the S. I spoke earlier about, you know, climate change and unsustainable production and consumption being two of the biggest of the three challenges. The third is actually a much more social one. And it's not diversity and all of these other things that people are talking about. It's inequalities. We have this massive growth in inequality around the world. And access to basic needs is going to be a massive driver, both in terms of risk, but also in opportunities. So people need an education. And we can see the disparities that happen around who gets access to education, who doesn't. People need access to healthcare. COVID has been the perfect example of how the rich West can invest in vaccines and get their populations vaccinated. And then there's the rest of the world suffering in these really trying times. And we all need to take an equal share in that access to housing, access to clean energy, access to lots of different things. That bottom of the pyramid where there's so so much discrepancies between the haves and the have-nots is also a real opportunity. What I would like to see over the next five years, this is probably more an ask rather than it will definitely happen, is that focus on demonstrating your value to society as a business. In order to get investment, you need to demonstrate your worth beyond a paycheck beyond the bottom line. 
that you can actually start reporting on the outcomes of your business. So how many lives have been reached? What difference does that make to those people's lives? It's not just about offering jobs, it's offering quality jobs. All of these things that meets that third big piece of the triangle, that inequality piece. What won't we see in the ESG investment landscape in five years? Well, we won't see it dying. (laughs) It's here to stay, which is great. And I hope we don't see a bubble. I think... It's a difficult one. I don't think we will see enough data. And that is a big, big issue, you know, properly used data. I think that's going to take longer. But then saying that, I've been quite astounded at how fast the last five years has been. I think we won't see deniers. I think they will start petering out people who say you can't do this because it's going to lose your returns. So I'd like to think that that will be the the death of the deniers in the next five years is, is something that we will see and they won't be around. Do you think there are five key points that really summarize this whole ESG landscape, where we are, where we're going to be? Yes. So the first would be that ESG and sustainability has become mainstream. The second is that we risk there being a bubble if we don't put standards above the need to make money. The third is that if we don't do this, we won't have a world to live in going forward. So the capital and how we allocate it will be key to the future of the world that we uh, invest in. The fourth is the need for data to improve. And the fifth is to make sure that our regulation is not vague and unclear. Is there anything more that that is a sort of burning desire for the world to know? Anything you want to share? I am super excited that in the last 20 years, we've actually been able to make this mainstream. I know there are a lot of people who've been around for a long time who are feeling quite weary and tired. And occasionally, as you're walking up a mountain, you need to turn around and look just how far you've come. And that is a really exciting prospect. Um, And people need to recognise just how much has been achieved. Well, that's it for the second episode of the Next Five podcast. Many thanks to Amanda Young for chatting with me today, and thank you to everybody for listening. For more information on ESG and the sources we used in the show, please check out the episode description. Take care, and bye for now. <laughs>